It is an honor to be here, it truly is, when um, you know, I've had many meals with Ken and Insul and Renji and to have this opportunity to speak to you. Uh, I learned late, I forgot this because I preached here before, but I forgot that I need to turn in my text by Friday at noon for the translators, for the volunteer translators. And that's really important to me because back in the 1990s, when I pastored in Korea, I was one of those translators. And so I was born and raised in America, in Santa Clara, California. And um, I ended up going to Korea and trying to learn the language. I pastored there for three years. And I really want to improve my Korean language skills. And so by my third year in pastoral ministry in Korea, I was assigned to the, uh, the simultaneous translation. And so I'd be in a booth, I'd go to the very top of the church, and I'd put on the headsets, and I would um, just translate as best as I can. And so it's a really hard, difficult, challenging thing. I will say one time there was a pastoral transition. And so the emeritus pastor took over during the t- transition, and the emeritus pastor founded the church right after the Korean War. In other words, he was, he was very old by the time he took over as the functioning lead pastor. He would not provide a sermon text for Sunday mornings. So I had to translate on the spot. And I was terrible. I was so bad. There'd be long periods of like complete silence while I looked down at the congregation. They're checking their headsets. And I'm like, no, everything's working. I just don't understand this guy. Here's the sad thing. Uh, After time, I got better because he would have his go-to sermon moves. And I, I began to learn those. So it got better in time. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that the job of making worship accessible in your heart language is so important for building the community, that no one is excluded because of language, that they have access to everything through the translator. So I'm grateful for their service. I am beginning my third year as Dean of Portland Seminary after 10 years as a biblical scholar. Uh, And so it's my job to to think how can we best train men and women for service in the church. So I'm very aware, according to some metrics, the church in the West is in decline. So last year, Gallup released a very well-known poll and asked people simply, are you a member of a church or religious organization? And from the 1930s to the 1960s, the answer was 70% said yes. In the 70s and 90s, the number fell a tiny bit to 68%. Today, church membership is about 52% of the population. And the news is even worse because those born in 1945 or before, 68% are members of the church. Those born, adults born after 1980, only 42% are members of a church. 36% of all Americans have confidence in church or any organized religion. And this is the first time it's actually dipped under 40%. For most of the 70s and 80s, it was over 60%. 65% of Americans claim to be Christians. This is down from 77% just 10 years ago. And 26% of Americans claim to be atheists. And this is up from 17% just 10 years. So there are demographic shifts in the church. And as fellow neighbors in the Northwest, Church experts believe that the Northwest is very peculiar because there's a deep suspicion against institution here in the Northwest. The same church experts think the Northwest is a harbinger for the nationwide church. So what we're experiencing here, the distrust towards any authority, whether it be the church or even biblical authority, is going to spread to the rest of the United States. It's not just the American church, but I watched the Korean church suffer and decline. So I pastored there in the 1990s, 
And the church that I pastored on a Sunday had about 30,000 people. And it was not even the biggest church in Korea. In fact, it was not even the biggest church in Seoul. In fact, it was not even the biggest Presbyterian church in Seoul. There was a bigger one besides us. Sunday attendance was 30,000. And South Korea for many years, for much of the 20th century, was perceived to be the success story about evangelical faith. Missionaries were allowed in 1884, and within 15 years, Korea opened its first seminary. And particularly after the end of the Korean War, Christianity exploded, doing social services, building schools, helping with education, helping with the literacy rate. You have to remember that the Korea that my mom and dad left in the 1960s was very poor. It, was, um, it had a GDP similar to many landlocked African continents, the countries. And I remember even my first time in Korea, which was 1977, I went to my grandmother's house in Seoul, and she did not have running water. They actually had a well that we pumped in Seoul in 1977. And so what's happened in the Korean church is by 2006, South Korea was sending more missionaries than any other country except for the United States. But Korean Christianity has paralleled American Christianity. Young people are leaving the church. And you could talk about reasons for that. You could talk about statistics on why that is so. Also, I could stand here before you and give you beautiful stories about the church, about the things that the church has done in, in regards to race and women's suffrage, in science and development. Um, things like the calendar were invented by the church. I could list things to give you hope, but I don't want to do that. Instead, I would like to ask us to look at Scripture, to think about Acts 2 and what it is about the church that still gives us hope today in the midst of these challenges. As we begin Acts 2, the chapter reminds us that Christianity was once 120 people. That's it, 120 people. And so they gathered in Jerusalem, for the Festival of Weeks, uh, 50 days after the Passover. And Acts 2 takes place in the setting. The beginning of Acts 2 is famous because this is the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the results of that gift. I'll go ahead and read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And this in Acts, Acts does this thing where they, they often have these concluding summary statements. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 is one of these concluding summary statements. What does it mean to have the Holy Spirit? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who are being saved. These are new Christians, and they are being transformed. I'd like to highlight the idea of, in the very beginning, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Think in your mind, what's something that you have devoted yourself to? the hours, the pain, the blood, the grit. They devoted themselves to four things. The first thing, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So I am the dean of the seminary. I still teach. 
uh, a little bit occasionally, but for 10 years I taught Hebrew and mostly Old Testament studies. Uh, in my career, I was a student aide for first and second graders when I was, when I was in college. I, I've taught math. At one point, I taught SAT and GRE prep. And I've also taught, um, I, well, I have a 16-year-old, so I'm teaching driving, which is terrifying. Uh, I've taught baseball. I've taught soccer. And I actually never played soccer, but I teach soccer. Apparently, it's a big thing in Oregon. And there's, there's nothing that YouTube and bravado cannot <laughs> stop you from. Just don't use your hands, kids. Go out there. Uh, there's something different about teaching the Bible and theology than teaching SAT. For the seminar, we can teach historical theology, we can teach Greek, we can teach Hebrew, we can teach how you exegete biblical texts, but that is a small portion of teaching. I tell the seminary students during orientation, if you're a good reader and a good writer and a critical thinker and a jerk, you'll probably do really well in most seminaries. I talked to another pastor who, at his, his final retirement service, he shared a story. And he said that when he was starting out, during his ordination service back in his 20s, he gave a service and an older pastor came to him. He said, you know, you have some good skills for ministry. Those skills will cover you for about 20 years. If you don't pay attention to the formation of your soul, it will all be revealed, but you're such a good preacher, it won't be revealed for another 20 years. That struck me because teaching theology and Bible for people preparing for ministry should be transformative. It shouldn't be beyond your cognition. And so when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, it's sensible to think about this more, not so much the teaching, but to the apostles' proclamation. The proclamation that you already know cognitively that Jesus of Nazareth died for our sins, and was resurrected from the dead. You know that cognitively. I'd like to suggest that proclamation is living in light of that reality. How do you live knowing that Christ died and was resurrected for your sins? I know that proclamation of the resurrection makes such a difference. The full belief in who you are, the full, full belief in the one who says that I am the bread of life, do you truly devote yourself to the proclamation that I am the bread of life? What he's saying is, I am everything that you need. I am everything that you need. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' fellowship. So I know the term fellowship is absolutely terrifying to 25 to 40% of you introverts out there. 25 to 40% of you are introverts, and the word fellowship is terrifying. And you know what? Us extroverts, I just want to let you know, we know who you are. We see you. You wear something like, don't talk to me on your face, which is cool. I have some really good news for you introverts. Fellowship is not talking about the weather or food or football at the end of church. That is not fellowship. You have my permission to walk by the elders and pastoral staff as they extend their hand, go straight to your car and to your couch at your home. Not really, but uh, fellowship is much more than this. Devoting yourself to fellowship is much more than a handshake in a 30-second conversation. It actually explains this a little bit later in the text. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, before you panic right now, it is largely understood that this is not a normative declaration. This does not mean that you all need to sell your goods right now, but you should have that attitude towards one another. 
You should think about the needs that each other's have. And for some of you, maybe it is a generous giving of the resources that God has given to you. I would suggest that the action of selling your goods and possession and distributing it to one another is an act of deep spiritual care for one another. And, and that is fellowship. It's a consistent theme throughout biblical texts that you are your brother's and sister's keeper, that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Often in sermons, we're admonished to think about how we can give to one another. I also want you to think about how you can receive for one another. So back in this church in Korea, it was a 30,000-person church. I think some of you of Korean descent will understand the Korean Presbyterian megachurch is a hard place to work politically sometimes. And uh, it's one of those things that's hard to to explain to Americans. You just don't negotiate salary if you're starting at a church. So I was part-time, and I will say I got paid about $300 a month. And back in Korea at the time, they just give you a wad of cash. They give you an envelope of cash at the end of every month. And what happened, though, uh, I started the church, but it wasn't official. And so I wasn't getting paid yet. And I remember going to church through the subway and using the equivalent of pennies to get my subway ticket and just arriving at church and thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'm out of cash. Uh, Well, I have my friend and mentor, and I'm just going to ask him for something to hold me over. And it was that Sunday when the elders called me and said, hey, we know you've already started. And they had done a secret offering for me on the day when I was literally out of cash in Korea. And I'll never forget that, not because of the cash, but it was a lesson for me that I still think to and hold on to. God will will give me all my needs. God will supply that which I need. And he's going to do this in surprising ways. This passage in Acts 2, it also does presume some degree of social class because there's a phrase that some people have needs. And the selling and distribution of possessions is not some cultic requirement, but it's an expression of joy from the community. And I will add, even though I do not think this verse is a normative requirement, I do recognize I'm speaking to a church in Beaverton, in a church that probably has more financial resources than many churches of the world, and also a church where there is larger class differential than many churches in the world, that there are people to the left and to the right of you that may have some need. And that's something I hope you can consider. Devotion to the Apostles' Fellowship. Third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So what does this mean? The breaking of bread, does it refer to communion or does it refer to actual meals? Well, the answer is it actually refers to both. There's good evidence that whenever it talks about the breaking of bread in the book of Acts, it's talking about some ritual activity, but it was also done in the context of a shared meal. So we've all done this in the past. Sometimes we have communion and you skip breakfast and you're looking for that big piece of bread. And you get that one-third extra calorie, like, yeah, that was good. But I know there's not, you're not so bold as to like dig through and shuffle through. That would be rude. But you're kind of eyeing for that big piece of bread. Well, actually, that's not totally false. Imagine taking of the part, partaking of the Lord's Supper and that is your meal for the day. I'm giving you a terrible analogy, but what if you did communion with like Chipotle up front, Chipotle buffet, something like that? The idea is actually this is your meal that you have, and this is also the body of Christ. There's great symbolism in that which sustains you. As you think about the breaking of bread, let me just ask you, if you could have lunch today with anyone, who would that person be? 
Some of you might be a family member. Some of you might not be a family member. That's fine. Who would that be? That's what it means by the breaking of bread, to foster safe, deep, authentic relationships in Christ and to share meals together. So devotion to the apostles' teaching or proclamation, devotion to the apostles' fellowship, devotion to the breaking of bread, and devotion to prayer. The notion of they devote themselves to the prayer suggests that this is collective prayer held in Jerusalem. Um, it refers to things that they did together and not just your individualized prayer. And so at George Fox, um, for a couple of years, I taught medieval studies, and we read something called the Rule of St. Benedict from the 6th century. And we take the undergraduates, we take them to Mount Angel Abbey, and we go down there, and we take a tour, we participate in worship, we meet with the abbots. And one of the most striking things of that tour, the monks at Mount Angel, they recite the Psalms together six times a day, together as a community. They recite the Psalms, and they do this entirely every two weeks. <clears throat> Thanks, Ken, for the tea. They do it in its entirely every two weeks. And so we have monks that have been there for over 40 years. And for 40 years, every two weeks, they've recited the Psalms in community with one another. And you go where they're standing, it's a wooden floor like this, and you actually feel the indentation of the floor from being used so many times from prayer. And it was an amazing conversation about what that does to a community when you're devoted six times a day to pray one another. The undergrads asked them, what is the hardest thing about being a monk? They all expect the same answer, the celibacy portion. But that's, no one says that's the hardest thing. They say the hardest thing is actually living together in community. That is the most challenging thing about being a monk. But despite that, for six times a day, they recite the Psalms together. This is an incredible devotion to prayer, but of course it's not the only way. George Fox University comes from the Quaker tradition, and so it values silence for the still small voice of God to emerge in that silence. I've grown to love this appreciation for silence. Uh, I was once asked to lead a group of theology professors in an ecumenical setting, and I decided to do it in five minutes of silence. And I will never do that ever again because it was so uncomfortable for all these professors to be silent for five minutes. In the Korean church, they do deep communal prayer in a different way. So I actually grew up in non-Korean churches in high school and college. So when I worked for a church, uh, I was not in the Pentecostal tradition. I got this ministry job and I attended my first sunrise Korean prayer. And it is the loudest thing you can imagine. It's, it's very passionate. It's very loud. Uh, I have an associate director who comes from the African-American Baptist tradition. And she, we have conversations about spirituality in her tradition is very different from the Quaker tradition. So on this Sunday, in the midst of a Christian faith in crisis, I present the idea that Acts 2, 42 through 47, shows us the church is still our hope. The church has weathered storms. The church is resilient in that we are called to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. To imagine a community, whether here in Acts 2 in the first century, beginning with 120 and thousands added to their numbers, or the beginnings of the medieval period under the rule of St. Benedict, or here right now, 2020 in Beaverton. 
And let me take you to some of the beginning of this narrative in Acts to remind you about what prefaces, what undergirds this amazing summary of Acts 2, 42-47. Acts 2, 6-11 reminds us what this church was really like. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. The creation of massive empires had one result. It began with the Assyrians, as this is documented in 2 Kings, but it put people in different ethnicities deep in regard for one another. And Sargon, who's mentioned in 2 Kings, has an inscription where he states, I will make them of one language. And we all know from history that cultural unification is a method of building empire. It's a method of building control. You see this happen throughout world history. You take away their language, you take away their culture. And here at Acts 2, you have something completely different. Not only will you remain speaking in your language, you're going to worship in this language, and you're going to hear each other and understand each other completely. Acts 2 defies this. So the account of the very earliest church, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, it spans people from three different continents, and they all gather together. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. Not only was there such a rich diverse assemblage, but none of these individuals were essentialized. They're able to speak in their own language, and this constitutes the very first church. Now, we talked very briefly about Martin Luther King, and yes, he was a pastor. His PhD was actually in theology, and we all know him from, as being a civil rights leader, but I have a quote from his I Have a Dream speech that concludes it. Why did he believe in this? Why did he have faith in the church? He was calling them at the very end, saying, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. We knew that Martin Luther King Jr. knew his Bible well. We study his sermons, we understand he essentially memorized huge portions of the King James Version. But beyond that, he knew Greek and Hebrew pretty well, because you notice in his sermons his way he could change things a little bit based on his knowledge. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that the very beginnings of the Christian church represented a level of equality and inclusion that he did not see in his neighborhood in the 1950s and 1960s. He saw that Acts 2, 42 through 47, was the ideal. And as a nation, as we reflect on him as a civil rights pioneer, I want you to remember this quote. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. In the midst of all the pain that he endured, Martin Luther King Jr. had faith in God. He had a vision informed by scripture of a true community of believers who would be devoted to the proclamation, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. He knew that it was Jesus and not legislative gains nor demonstration as the ultimate, ultimate cumulative source of healing. So as you go about your week, as you explore tomorrow, remember this phrase from Dr. King's most iconic speech 
shows you the root of Dr. King's faith in the glory of the Lord that the church is still our hope. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the spirit by which you give us. We are grateful that you are such a sovereign, historically powerful God. We are grateful that when we look around to the left and right and we're frustrated and we're tired and we see metrics that show the waning of Christianity, we know that your glory is greater. And Lord, we ask for your help and grace as we are called to devote ourselves to teaching, to true fellowship, to breaking of bread with one another, and to the prayers, that with the bodies that we steward today, we will serve you with all our heart. Help us be reflective that inclusion, equality, justice, they're not some political agenda, but it represents the very heart of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.